Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It was November 14, uh, 2004, where six-year-old Alex Marlarkey was in the vehicle on his way home in rural Ohio with his father. His father uh, made a left-hand turn and crossed traffic and didn't see the oncoming vehicle. That vehicle struck the car, sending young Alex's father flying from the vehicle. Alex uh, actually was not knocked out of the vehicle, but the violence of the impact separated his head from his spinal column. He woke up from a coma two months later in a hospital at six years old as a quadriplegic. But when he woke up, he began telling his parents stories. Stories about what happened to him when he was in that coma. Stories about uh, going to heaven. Stories about meeting Jesus and, and angels. And about the angels that intervened to save his father on that fateful day. His parents were pretty captivated by it and his his father actually began writing the stories of his trip to heaven down. And then six years later, in 2010, he sold those stories in a manuscript form to Tyndale House Publishers. They turned that into a book, and that book was published by Tyndale. Go ahead and put that up there. It's called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. And notice on the bottom it says there a, a true story. It sold over a, a million copies, and it was on the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. But from the very beginning, there were problems with this. Young Alex's mother, who read the book, said, this book doesn't really even accurately represent many of the things that my son said. Then, five years after that, in a blog post that Alex wrote himself, he denied the whole thing. He admitted the whole thing was a hoax. None of the stories were true. To quote him, let me just tell you what he said. He said in his blog post, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I made the whole thing up because I simply wanted attention. There were millions of people who were furious at that stunning admittal. How are we supposed to know what life is like in heaven? How are we supposed to know if people who have died and seem to gone there won't even tell the, the truth? And when a Christian publisher puts this out, claiming to be a true story, I mean, what can you believe anymore? That's, those are the questions that we're going to answer this morning. How can we know for sure that life after death exists? And how can we know what it's actually like? This morning, when we look at the text of Scripture, we're going to have answers to those questions, much better answers than a six-year-old can provide. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Remind you of where we are. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. As we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus has been going head-to-head -head with the Sadducees. The Sa or the, excuse me, not the Sadducees, I got my S's mixed up. The Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin is the Jewish ruling council, the, the group that is in charge of Judaism. And Jesus has been winning every single one of those head-to-head competitions with them. In fact, we saw last week that after the uh, most recent head-to-head competition with them, they were so embarrassed and frustrated, they withdrew for a period of time, regrouped, came up with a new plan that we saw last week, and then came back to Jesus. Here was their new plan. The Sanhedrin is composed of three different types of people. It was composed of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. What they decided to do is each one of these groups was going to send a delegation to Jesus to try and trick Jesus and trap Jesus so he would lose popularity with the people and possibly even get the Romans working against him. Last week, we looked at the first group that came to him. It was a group of Pharisees who tried to trick and trap him. They gave him a loaded question about paying taxes to Caesar. Should we do that or should we not? And Jesus uh, saw through their tricks and stepped aside their question and gave them a much wiser answer than they ever expected. This morning, we're going to see the second delegation from the Sanhedrin comes to try and trick and trap Jesus. This is a group of Sadducees. And the Sadducees, their goal is to make Jesus look like a fool. They want to make him look foolish in front of the people so he loses his popularity with the people. But as we're going to see, Jesus turns the tables on them and actually makes them look like complete fools instead. Now, hopefully by now you found your spot in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Stand out of reverence for the Word of God as I begin reading in that verse, and then read down to verse 27. And please follow along with your eyes and your copy of the Word of God. The Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. That ends the reading of the word of God. You can be seated. By the way, I just always thought it was interesting. Imagine if, if you were this woman, <laughs> like, and you had to marry seven guys in a row. This lady does not have any luck with women whatsoever, or this woman does not have any luck with men whatsoever. 
Not only that, but imagine if you were the seventh guy. Obviously, you think you're marrying a black widow. Well, humor aside, I'd like to divide this passage up into three parts. First, what we want to do is I want to study some background on the Sadducees and their belief in the resurrection, because we'll need this background to understand. And then we're going to look at how these Sadducees tried to make Jesus look like a fool, and then we'll see how Jesus actually made them look like fools instead. So let's begin right here at the top on your notes, the background of the Sadducees, which we'll just launch off of that with the first verse in our section. The Sadducees came to him saying that there, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. The two things I'd like to talk about here by way of background is the idea, first of all, of the resurrection in Judaism, and then we'll get into the Sadducees and who they are. So the first thing you need to know uh, here is, what did most Jews believe about the resurrection? And you need to know that the vast majority of Jews believed there was a resurrection, and the vast majority of Jews believed in the existence of life after death. And you can find tons of evidence of this all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. For instance, I put some of these down for you. Psalm 16, 9 through 10. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is simply an Old Testament reference to the grave. It's sort of a very nondescript place. It's where people went when they died. The psalmist says here that you will not uh, leave me in this place of the grave, but I will come out the other side. I'm confident of this. And we know this is not just something that David was referring to for himself, but ultimately by the time we get to the New Testament, we find out this was messianic. Because it also says you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And the New Testament tells us this refers to Jesus and his very resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> or you can go to Psalm 73, 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Here's another evidence of a, a psalmist. The psalmist saying that what happens when I die, I will go home to be with the very presence of God. I will not cease to exist. But after death, for those who know God, will come glory with God. Or Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. That here the psalmist says that God will pay a price to take people out of the realm of death ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. Does that sound like what Jesus came to do? Yes, exactly. He will receive me. So the psalmist is confident that he will come out the other side of death because God will take him out the other side of death. But the Old Testament is also clear that it is not just life after death that uh, will happen, but Life after death, there will be everyone will actually get their very self-same bodies back at one time. 
the body that you and I have today will one day resurrect from the grave and we will live again in that body. The Old Testament talks about this. Job says this, And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That's pretty clear. My body's been destroyed, but I'm confident that one day in my very flesh I will see God. Or Isaiah says this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So Isaiah is also very confident that it is not just life after death that takes place, but it is our very self-same bodies that will rise from the very dust of the earth. And we will be reunited with our bodies. Now Daniel, he continues and he tells us more about this. And many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Daniel says, not only is there life after death, and will our self-same bodies arise from the dead, but everyone will not experience the same thing. Some will arise and experience everlasting life in their bodies. Others will experience shame and everlasting contempt. Or the word contempt literally means revulsion. Not pleasant. Well, this is pretty important for us to understand. The vast majority of Judaism in the days of Jesus believes this. They believe in life after death. They believe in the resurrection of the bodies. It's very clearly found in so much of the Old Testament scriptures. But today, we're going to meet a group in Judaism that doesn't believe any of this. They're the group called the Sadducees. And they are sad, you see, because they do not believe in the resurrection. And that's how I always remember it as a child on up. So... Who were the Sadducees, and what did they believe? The main thing you need to know, of course, is they are Sadducee because they do not believe in this resurrection, even though it's clearly spelled out in much of our Old Testament. We see this, by the way, in Acts 23, verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So while the majority of Jews believe what I've showed you in the Old Testament, the Sadducees do not believe that at all. They believe that when you die, you simply cease to exist. When you die, you are like a candle flame that is snuffed out. They do not believe there is a judgment after death. They do not believe there are rewards after death. They do not believe in any kind of afterlife. They figure you get as much as you can out of this world in this life, and when you die, you are completely done with, and it is over. Now, the Sadducees, they are definitely the minority group within Judaism in this day, 
but they are also an extremely powerful group in Judaism in this day. The Sadducees are in control of the temple. The high priest on down are all Sadducees. They control the temple. So they're in a position of great amount of power, great amount of wealth, great amount of influence. They are focused on money, power, and control, which sort of fits well if you believe this life is all there is. Because <laughs> they have all the money, power, and control. Incidentally, we know, we learned in previous weeks, that in 70 A.D. the temple is destroyed. Once the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D., the Sadducees completely cease to exist as a group within Judaism. Because they were all about the temple. And with no temple, they had no reason to continue to exist. Last week, I uh, said that the Pharisees, they were sort of the right-wing conservatives. The Sadducees were sort of the left-wing liberals. Uh, in the modern-day parlance, how we would understand these guys politically. And I did a little more research, and I have to tell you that that is not completely correct. So I want to take a moment to sort of correct myself on this. The Sadducees are very liberal in many ways. They're liberal in the sense that they are pro-Rome. They're liberal in the sense that they are pro-wealth. They are liberal in the sense that they are wanting to mo the, excuse me, mold into uh, the modern-day Roman sociological and political system. But... On the other side, they are sort of ultra-conservative theologically. Earlier, we talked about a number of verses in the Old Testament that very clearly talk about the resurrection, that very clearly talk about life after death. And you're, you, you are doing the same thing that I'm doing. You're saying, if you're Sadducees, how could you see these verses in the Old Testament and yet not believe in the resurrection at all? Here's how. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as valid scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the books of Moses. They were all written by Moses, sometimes called the Pentateuch. Penta is five. So that's where you, how you remember that. So that's all they accepted as valid scripture. The verses that I quoted for you, which very clearly talk about life after death and the resurrection of the body in life after death, come after the Pentateuch. And they would say they're not valid. That's why they would not accept them. In fact, they would argue that in the Pentateuch you have no evidence for life after death, no evidence for resurrection, and no evidence for angels, which is why they didn't believe it. Now, personally, I don't agree with them. Jesus also doesn't agree with them. And so you're, if you don't agree with them, you're in a good camp. You're in Jesus' camp. Uh, but that's not where they're at at this point. So, what we've seen is we have the Sadducees who are socially very liberal, but theologically ultra-conservative. Now the Pharisees, they are socially very conservative, but in some ways they can be theologically ultra-liberal. Let me explain. 
the Pharisees obviously are against Rome. The Pharisees are very legalistic and regimented in their approach to life, in their memorization of the scripture. They're socially conservative. The Pharisees, by the way, have accepted all of the books of the Old Testament, the books that you and I would accept from the Old Testament and that has been accepted throughout church history. They would accept those. So that's why they believe in the resurrection. That's why they believe in life after death. But what they had done, you've probably seen this if you've been around the church for a while, they had developed oral tradition. They had developed other written traditions from other scribes and other Pharisees. And they had started to place those oral and written traditions on the same level of authority as Scripture itself, which is not the way to go. See, in some of their oral traditions, they had begun to debate what the resurrection life would be like. And they figured that the resurrection life would be just like this life. And so they would have literal debates. You know, when you are resurrected from the dead, do you think you'll be with your clothes or without your clothes? And they cited, by the way, on with clothes for obvious reasons. They would say, well, if we're resurrected with clothes, do you think we're resurrected in the old clothes that we died in? Or did, will God give us new clothes for that day? And then they would say, well, when you're resurrected from the dead... Do you carry your infirmities from this life into the next life? Like if you were missing a hand in this life, will you be resurrected missing a hand in the next life? If you had a big mole on your arm in this life, when you're resurrected, would you have that same mole on your arm in the next life? And by the way, they went with the idea that your infirmities carried through with you to the resurrection your moles carried through with you to your resurrected bodies. And they also went with the idea that if you were married to somebody in this life, then therefore you would be married to that person in the resurrected life. By the way, it doesn't say any of that in Scripture. This is all of their speculation all of their conjecture, it is way beyond Scripture. And this is what gets them all in trouble. And this is what the Sadducees were reacting against when they said this response to this story. So let's look at this. The Sadducees tried to make Jesus look like a fool by attempting to prove the resurrection was wrong. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And you have to like the way they start with this term teacher, which by the way is a term of great respect in that culture. You know that this is not genuine respect for Christ. They are setting up Christ, or rather they are buttering up Christ so they could set up Christ. Then they can try and ruin him. And what they're going to talk about is something called Leverite marriage. Leverite, by the way, comes from Latin. It literally means brother-in-law marriage. If you want to find where this is in your Old Testament, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 19. And what it says is if a, a man is married and he doesn't have an offspring and he dies, 
His brother is supposed to marry his widow so that they would have a child together so that offspring then would be the inheritor, the one who inherit his older brother's stuff and line. Now this is, by the way, very important in the um, early period here because you have the people in the land of Israel the land has to stay in family lines. Like you want to pass the farm onto the people who are in your family, not lose the farm from your family. So you need to have an heir for it to go to. So that's what it talks about. By the way, we see at least two places in Scripture where this idea of Leverite marriage was actually carried out. One is Genesis 38, uh, when you have Er and Tamar. And Er dies, and so Onan is the one who is the younger brother who then marries Tamar, but he does a little bunch of messing around, so God strikes him dead. You can read Genesis 38 on your own later. But you also find this happens in the book of Ruth. Remember Ruth, the Moabitess, who ends up married? Her husband is an Israelite, and she comes back, and she's with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and there is nobody who is an heir to take the land, but they end up, Ruth ends up meeting a man named Boaz, who is related. They end up getting married. Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David, King David. So you see the importance of this uh, whole system of Levite marriage, and it's part of what enables, it's part of Jesus' uh, kingly line. Well, what we see here is the Sadducees make up a fictional story about what could possibly happen with this idea of Levite marriage. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. But last of all, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her. The Sadducees here are reacting to the way the Pharisees described the resurrection life would be like. That in the resurrection, if you were married in this life, you would be married in the next life. If you had a mole in this life, you would have that same mole in the next life. The Bible, as I said, doesn't say that. And quite honestly, I sort of agree with the Sadducees at this point. But now Jesus takes them on. Jesus made the Sadducees look like fools by proving the resurrection was right. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. I love Jesus on this one. He just comes right out. You are wrong. So much for being gentle. He's just a just a truth teller. He just slams them right up against the wall. You are wrong. In fact, you know why you are wrong? Gives two reasons. Because you don't know your Bibles and because you don't understand the power of God. Which, if you're the Sadducees who pride themselves on knowing the first five books, I mean, this is a complete and total insult. 
By the way, it's interesting. When he says you are wrong, the word for wrong here in the Greek is the Greek word planeo, from where we get our word planet. Jesus is literally saying, you guys are so far off base, you are literally out in space. Which is a very creative cut down on Jesus' part. So that's what he's saying. And here's how he, let's break these apart on the two misunderstandings. We'll start at the second one. They're wrong because they don't understand the power of God. The resurrection will be much more than a continuation of this life. It's not just like we are existing now. Jesus says this, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus says when people rise from the dead and they're in their resurrection body, they are not going to be married in that body or get married in that body. The whole idea of sex, reproduction, having children, that is all something that is about our bodies in this life. It is not continued into our resurrection bodies in the next life. Jesus is very clear. By the way, the Mormons miss this completely. The Mormons will tell you that what you do is in the next life, you get married and you have spirit babies and you populate planets. Jesus says no. Islam, what do they tell you? If you're the guy who blows yourself up, you get 72 virgins in the next life. Jesus is like, sorry, no, marriage is not for the next life. So sex, reproduction, birth, that's all about this life, not the resurrection life. But what does Jesus say? In the resurrection life, we will be like angels. Notice he didn't say we will be angels, but we will be like angels. What are angels like? And incidentally, I think this is a complete shot at the Sadducees who don't even believe in the existence of angels at this point. What are angels like? Are they known for their weakness or are they known for their power? Power. Angels are also known for their glory. They're known for their beauty. Do angels die? No. Angels exist forever. Do angels reproduce? No. We will be like angels. The Pharisees thought the resurrected life would be just like this life. Jesus says the resurrected life will be like this life, but it will be vastly improved in every single way. Much better. Paul describes the resurrected life this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says it is impossible for you and me to even imagine the amazing nature of the resurrected life 
And it's impossible for you and I even to imagine the amazing nature of our resurrected bodies. It, both of them will literally blow our mind in their greatness. It is sort of like a baby in utero trying to imagine the sound of a symphony. A baby in utero trying to imagine what it is like to look across the Grand Canyon. He can't do it. It's way beyond our abilities. That's what the resurrection life is going to be like for you and me. It's not just a continuation of this life. It is a vast improvement of this life. Which is why, my friends, the resurrection life is our greatest hope. When we die, understand, nobody ceases to exist. When we die as Christians, Paul says in Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is better by far. But while we are present with the Lord spiritually, our bodies are in the ground physically. But one day Christ will return and say our name, just like he said Lazarus' name. And our same bodies, the Bible says, will reconstruct and burst forth from the ground. And our bodies, the Bible says, will not be just like our current bodies. They will be like us and that we will be recognizable. But our bodies will be incredibly powerful. Our bodies will be incredibly wonderful. Our bodies will be like angelic bodies. And at that time, the Bible says that God will judge us, but he will judge us for rewards, not judge us for our sin. But the Bible also says that those who die apart from Christ, their spirits go to a place right now called Hades. It's a place of torment. And their bodies also go in the grave. But one day, Jesus will say their name, and their self-same bodies will resurrect from the dead. And they will be united back with their bodies. And they will also face a judgment. Not a judgment of rewards at that time, but a judgment to face what is just eternal condemnation at that time. Because they still have their sin that has not been paid for and atoned for by Christ. Well, the key focus of this passage is for us and our resurrection life and our resurrection bodies. Our bodies in that day will be so much vastly better than our bodies today. In fact, if you think about it, the resurrection life and the promise of our resurrection bodies is what gets us through so many of today's crises in our life. We persevere in the difficult times of this life knowing that one day we will stand before Jesus and be rewarded for our perseverance in the next life. While this life is, for as Christians, this life is only the beginning. It is certainly never the ending. Just as Jesus is now alive in the flesh, we too will one day be alive in the flesh. Incomprehensible joy is what will be ours one day. Now, while I've told you about the incredible, incomprehensible joy of our resurrected life that awaits us, and the incomprehensible power of the resurrection bodies that awaits us, I know for 
each of us, there's a struggle. That struggle is that marriage part. We love our spouse. How could we have incomprehensible joy in heaven if we're not married to our spouse? How do we untangle that riddle? Let me show you. The Bible tells us the joy of marriage in this life was created to whet our appetite for the joy of being with Christ in the resurrected life. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explains the very purpose of marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound. But then what does he say? And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says that all of the joy that you have out of marriage, all of the satisfaction, all of the closeness of two people being so close as one, it's designed to whet our appetite for the day that we will be with Jesus. Because being with Jesus in that day will be even more satisfying than being married to a wonderful spouse today. Do you understand that? The closeness of our relationship with Jesus in that day will bring much more joy than your spouse ever brought to you today. It is designed just to whet your appetite for Jesus. The other thing we need to know is our relationship with our family will be closer and more satisfying in the resurrected life than in this life. So when we hear that we will not be married in the resurrected life, we think, well, how could we be close with my spouse who I love so dearly right now? But remember, everything about the resurrected life is a vast improvement of this life. If in six days our creative God made all of the colors, all of the plants, all of the animals, all of the fish, all of the planets in the vast universe that we are exploring and beginning to come to know, in six days he made that. Imagine what the new creation will be like, which is like this creation, but stripped free of sin and improved 10,000 times over. And our bodies, our resurrection bodies, will be like our current bodies, but stripped free of sin and improved 10,000 times over. And improved 10,000 times over will also be our resurrection relationships. That the person that you love most now, that is so close to your heart, your spouse, in the resurrection, you will know them 10,000 times better and love them 10,000 times more. Because everything about the resurrection life is a 10,000 time improvement of the good things in this life. So we must remember about what incredible things await us. Now, Paul says this as he tries to just sort of encapsulate all these ideas in 1 Corinthians 15. 
But some of you will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? That almost sounds like he's responding to some Sadducees at this point, doesn't it? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. He says, think about what it's like for the farmers. They put that little grain of corn into the ground, but all of a sudden another grain of corn doesn't pop out of the ground. That grain of corn gives birth to a huge plant with color and beauty to it. So it is with your life and my life. When our bodies are planted in the ground, and when Jesus calls our name and our body is resurrected, it will not just be another grain that pops out of the ground, but it will be like an entire huge plant, like an oak tree that comes off of a little tiny oak seed. That is what awaits us, according to Paul. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have become the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his body is the prototype of our resurrection body. We read in Scripture that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, but he is not the lastborn of the dead that we too will have our bodies in the self-same way that Jesus' body rose. And our body will be just like Jesus' body. That is what we look forward to. We look forward to bodies that will be 10,000 times better, a resurrection life that will be 10,000 times better, and our relationships with one another will be 10,000 times closer and more satisfying. Now Jesus, he goes to their other Achilles heel. They didn't understand the Bible. The resurrection is spoken of in the first five books. Remember, they claimed the resurrection didn't take place because they didn't see it in the first five books. But Jesus says it's very clearly spelled out in those first five books. And he says this, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? That's the first five books. In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
Jesus brings the Sadducees to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And he says, did you notice there that when God speaks to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead and gone. They are very much alive, and they are with God today. Evidence, rock-solid proof from the first five books of the Bible that life after death exists. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive even when they are dead. And that's why Jesus says, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And you are quite wrong. So I need to ask you, who's the fool now? Did they make Jesus into a fool? Or did Jesus reveal the foolishness that they had? Jesus revealed the foolishness of, that they had by thinking that the resurrection life is just identical to this life. It's not. It's vastly improved and so much better. And the scriptures themselves, they prove in the fact that life after death exists. You know, we began by talking about uh, six-year-old Alex Malarkey who made up a story about what it was like in heaven and about angels and Jesus. And millions of people believed it until it was discovered it was a hoax. But we went to the scriptures today and we found evidence for life after death. And we found what it's like that it's 10,000 times better for those who love Jesus. We didn't get it from a six-year-old child. We got this all from Jesus. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.